Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Gordon Henry and Elizabeth LaPonce to discuss their comics project, Sovereign Traces. Thanks for tuning in. Now in two volumes, the Sovereign Traces series merges works of contemporary North American Indian literature with imaginative illustrations by U.S. and Canadian artists. As comics, the Sovereign Traces volumes provide an extended means for audiences to engage with works of Native literature, including fiction, poetry, and memoir in a variety of exciting forms. The first volume, Not Just an Other, includes text adapted from writers such as Gordon Henry, Gerald Visner, Joy Harjo, Louise Erdrich, illustrated by artists such as Delisha Williams, GMB Chamachuk, and Nicholas Burns. The second volume, Relational Constellation, extends the focus of the series to include additional original works that provide a unique opportunity for audiences to hear from myriad North American indigenous voices on the meaning of love. I'm thrilled to welcome Gordon Henry and Elizabeth LaPonce to the show today to discuss Sovereign Traces. Gordon is an Anishinaabe poet, fiction writer, and essayist, and an enrolled member of the White Earth Nation. He's the author of the poetry collection The Failure of Certain Charms and the novel The Light People, which was the recipient of the American Book Award. A professor of literature and creative writing at Michigan State University, Gordon also serves as editor of MSU Press's American Indian Studies series. Elizabeth LaPonce is an award-winning designer, writer, artist, and researcher. She is Anishinaabe from Bawating, with relations at Bay Mills Indian Community and Métis. She's assistant professor of media and information and writing rhetoric and American cultures at Michigan State University, and has contributed to comics as an illustrator, writer, and editor, including volumes such as Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection, and Dear Woman, an anthology. Gordon, Beth, thank you both so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about Sovereign Traces. Mm, miigwech for having us. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. Appreciate it. I'm really excited to talk about these volumes, in part because I love to see university presses branching out from the kind of traditional monograph publishing. The first volume of Sovereign Traces came out in 2018, sort of when I first started hanging around the press. Uh, and it's really this press's first foray into publishing anything like a comic book, as far as I'm aware. Beth, I understand that you came on uh, as the first volume was underway. So I was wondering if, Gordon, you could tell us a little bit about how the idea came about and how work began on these volumes. Yeah, I'll go into sort of a, a deep history, but not too deep. <laughs> I was, I'm friends with James uh, Nigon Sinclair. Our, our, you know, we're colleagues in a way. We both attend a Native American Literature Symposium. And I was talking to him there at, a, at the symposium, I want to say it's back in 2012, and we discussed doing a series of uh, graphic literature comics through MSU Press. From there, we got in some conversation, wrote back and forth, and I submitted a heart proposal through MSU to fund the illustrations for uh, the volumes that would be forthcoming. And once that happened, we, we found writers, Nigon had gotten some people from Canada, Richard Van Camp, for one to write. Um, and uh, I think he got Stephen Graham Jones on board as well. Mm -hmm. So, and then I, I talked to Louise Erdrich and Joy Harjo and others and got the other writers on board. But the, the project floundered for a while um, because the tough part for me was finding the illustrators. 
and Negon kind of backed off. He had found a few illustrators, but uh, once Beth came on, I think it was in 2017, late 2017, early 2018, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, the illustrations really picked up speed and we started getting things together and it was done pretty quickly after Beth came on board. And uh, <laughs> thanks, to her, thanks to her connections in the uh, graphics community that uh, got us going. Beth, what was it that excited you about the Sovereign Traces project? Well, it was an opportunity to really bring together uh, more Indigenous illustrators onto the project. And I think that just as Gordon was talking about, I mean, part of the reason why it floundered, I'm aware of this from working on other comic collections, is just that we did not necessarily have the bandwidth of Indigenous illustrators with the experience when a project like this was thought up. And in the meantime, Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection, uh, which was put together through uh, AH Comics, was building an audience for Indigenous comics, but also making the transition from having Indigenous writers supported by those who are not Indigenous as illustrators into bringing on more and more Indigenous illustrators. And there's this opening up of, you know, yeah, we can do this ourselves. However, Having said that, all of those collections are still very oriented around uh, the possibility of a middle school audience because they need to make sales. Their businesses, are, they're making sales, and so they're aiming for schools, they're aiming for uh, libraries, this kind of connection. And so because of that, while I loved working on those collections very much, there's also a limitation in the kind of content that we are allowed to include, right? And so a lot gets edited back. And with Sovereign Traces, not just another, it was something else. It was actually something that could speak to uh, adult audiences. You could bring in uh, voices and pieces that you know were very resonant with Indigenous experiences. And so that's what, for me, was so exciting and so unique was this possibility of saying, yeah, you know, comics are not just for youth this can have a wide range of experiences for all ages you know one of the ways that it really shows that wide range is the sheer number of collaborators involved with both of the volumes i think i counted and it's just about 50 i think it's 48 total <laughs> people involved with assembling the collection i mean comics are a you know inherently collaborative medium or, or often a very collaborative medium but i wonder if you could say a little bit about you know gordon you mentioned a few of the people that you had reached out to that you wanted to make sure to include work from how did you go about picking collaborators and contributors for these two volumes well from my perspective i was looking for for lack of better terms really well-known american indian writers well known in, at least in the field of american indian literature um, some are nationally known by almost everyone like louise erdrich and stephen graham jones perhaps um, and Richard Van Camp in Canada. So I was looking for just a really good collection of writers um, and not really limiting even what they were doing to a particular genre. I, you know, I invited some to write poems. Um, there were a few poems in, in, the, in the collection that the best illustration of Louise's poem is just amazing. Um, and there's also um, a sense that I want to just give them the latitude and freedom to do what they wanted in the, in the literature and then let the illustrators sort of interpret that work from their view and expanding the reach of literature for me. I mean, Beth talked about audience and for me, it was getting these really well-known, at least in American Indian circles, writers out there with their work in a different way that hadn't been done before, at least as far as I knew. So it was uh, 
for me, that was that was a big part of it. And I just thought it was was really unique. And there, you know, there's something in the air as well at certain times. Like Chris Tuton had just written a scholarly uh, book on and a chapter on uh, orality, writing, and image, and then also suggested that graphic literature or graphics of American Indian communities were a third kind of interpretive skill that would supplement the other two and create this kind of wholeness in the view. Uh, through those other two, writing and literature, orality, and then the image. So there's a lot. There was a lot happening. We were all talking about it at the time, and um, I think this gave us a really good opportunity to bring writers and uh, illustrators together. Beth, did you have particular people that you wanted to work with, or a kind of uh, vision for the kinds of writers that you would get involved? Absolutely. I think for me, it was hoping for an opportunity to extend out that, uh, you know, directing towards a more adult audience into the relational constellation. Obviously, that series then gets pushed, right? Sovereign Traces as a series gets pushed further because uh, they're are works that border on erotica in the context of expressing indigenous meanings of love. And there are people who I've worked with, uh, with Shoyo Elvitre. Uh, I've co-edited the Dear Woman in Anthology with her, as well as done work with her. She was the illustrator for the game When Rivers or Trails. I love her work. And so, of course, any opportunity I get to work with the people that I, whose work I really respect and love, like Dale Ray DeForest, uh, Lee Francis, who runs Native Reality Press, Sean Bale, Renee Neho actually was brought on as well. She's typically a game artist, but you know I talked her into doing an illustration and writing her own comic. And I think that was a bit of the difference between the two collections is in the first, there are these really incredible, well-known, writers and their work is then being uplifted and expressed through really incredible illustrators. And then in the second volume, there is space for illustrators and writers to be one and the same, which is something we're not really very often given space to do in proper comic industry. Very often you get limited to the point where even like some people only do the colors and some people only do lettering and, you know, some people only do inks. Um, And it's very rare that people are given an opportunity to be both the writer as well as the illustrator. And so that was part of the emphasis for that. And then the other piece of it, which is I'll um, tease Richard on this one. So with Richard Bandcamp, like I can't afford him. I can't afford you, Richard. So that's part of the the piece of it too, right? Is that the first volume was able to bring in really incredible names that have agents <laughs> that advocate very well for them. And that was really incredible, but it's, it's a difficult uh, process to get the kind of funding you need to then bring in those names. You know, I wonder if we could return to something that Gordon was talking about, because I think it's as I said, this is one of the first kind of comics projects that the MSU Press has done. And I, I think it's a particularly interesting one because it's such a unique form, you know, to, to be thinking about how do we translate these kinds of things. In the second volume, one of the contributors, Dan Steinhardt, uh, has this point that he makes about Ojibwe culture, where he says that, you know, the stories and teachings, uh, you know, Ojibwe culture and other indigenous cultures are passed along orally, and thus they're tied to dialects, interpretations, etc. And he turns his thinking about that dynamic into this 
really beautiful kind of completely wordless comic called uh, Two Spirit Step. What do the two of you make of the comics form? What does it offer that other modes don't? And how have indigenous artists sort of approached it and, and used it uh, for their own purposes? Well, I think good literature always has a sort of uh, imaginative interior that we imagine the spaces and the images associated with that literature. And so the graphic component of this, the illustrations, take that to another level uh, with another interpretive view of what that interior landscape or interior place and view of literature might entail. And for me, that's really amazing. And, you know, it was astounding to me to see what the illustrators did. I mean, maybe I wouldn't have imagined the frames in the way I did. I mean, there's a Gerald Fisner story on Ice Trickster in the first volume that I showed it to my students at Dartmouth and they just looked at it and they were just, you know, amazed at, at it. And they also laughed when they saw the imagery and the way it was produced and done. So, you know, they got the humor of Visner's work, but the images out of the nether extension of that humor that really uh, made the thing float in a totally different way uh, in terms of the, the, the way that you uh, meet it with your own reading of a text. And, and so I think that's really part of it. it is. It is almost a critical interpretive extension of what we do as literary readers um, to have somebody illustrate it and do that some of that work for us so for me that was one of the values of it I think yeah that was it was really incredible to see it was uh, JMB Chamachuk who did Ice Tricksters and then he also illustrated Negan Sinclair's piece Trickster Revelations or Trickster Reflections so in Trickster Reflections you get to see a different interpretation of tricksters, yet it is in the same art style, but the colors are different and the way, you know, he did the panels is different. And so there's something about the continuity between those pieces where you can start to look at, okay, these are like interpretations mm -hmm. of tricksters through this lens. Um, and so those pieces are, really phenomenal to see. For me, I've always struggled with writing in English. And so comics was a way in which I could express fully what my meaning is because I will think in textures and in certain colors. And I tend to, when I just write, get really caught up in those details that are not the dialogue and not, you know, what, what's the actual story? I'm like, but this copper. <laughs> The cop is just in the scene, okay? It's not the whole aspect of the piece. So comics um, give me the space to do that then. You know, I can have those textures. And a lot of the work that um, I do very rarely has dialogue. Um, I'm being pushed more to do that in the interest of, you know, creating stories that can be read by a wider audience. And that's been an interesting experience for me more recently. But I think about like Gordon, you know, your piece in there, The Prisoner of Haiku, what is so vital about it then is how from panel to panel, it moves from poetry back to writing. There's dialogue and there's space for all of these different forms of writing. Uh, but with Gordon's, I think I, you know, I always hesitate about having it illustrated because Gordon's, uh, you know, a very incredible writer. Like you do that focus and it's brought to life through words. And so that's the challenge then for illustrators is when a piece is done really well in writing, 
how do you bring that into comic form? And that was a unique challenge for the first volume. Whereas with the second volume, it was entirely just here are comic scripts and, or, you know, the, the illustrators were working with their stories right off the start. So it's a different process between the two of the collections for sure. You know, I wanted to ask Gordon about about the Prisoner of Haiku, which is your contribution to the first uh, Sovereign Traces volume. Uh, as Beth had sort of started to say, there's interesting tensions there rising up from how do we adapt it and how do we illustrate it. And the story itself is about these kind of interesting formal questions. You know, the prisoner of haiku as a young as a young boy is beaten at a boarding school for speaking his native language. He then finds himself imprisoned after having uh, carried out some burnings of government buildings, of liquor stores owned by the state, etc. cetera. Uh, and then in prison takes on haiku. Uh, which is a completely, you know, different cultural form from other familiar forms. How did you come to thinking about haiku? Well, it was a couple of things. I mean, I, I started out writing as an images poet who, you know, wrote in, in images and tried to write images. So that was part of the haiku thing. Um, but the story really came out of a story someone told me about uh, a boarding school experience. And I, they, you know, they said, it's fine if I share that story. So I adapted it a little bit in that piece uh, about somebody who actually had that experience of, of, you know, being tied outside at some point in their uh, boarding school life. And I, I thought I decided I would try to write that story. And haiku is an interesting form for me. I mean, it's been adapted and appropriated across centuries from those original haiku masters. And, uh, and I think one of the things I found appealing about it is you just try to reflect very briefly on image and produce something in image. Now, forgive me, I'm gonna go a bit academic here just for a minute. <laughs> Roland Barthes once said, haiku stops language. Mm. So in that regard, it's, it's a good way of thinking about language and image and how they, they work together. Mm. Um, and that became where this particular character's uh, language actually restarted after it had stopped through this boarding school experience. So there's all, kind of these, all kinds of these little image, irony, uh, writing tensions inside of that piece that I was thinking about. But, you know, sometimes you just walk around and you see something and it becomes a little image piece. And uh, that's kind of what it was. You know, I wonder if, if we could talk uh, abstracting a little, you know, thinking about cultural forms and, and the way that comics is able to, to reproduce them. One of the things that we were talking about a few minutes ago was the trickster. And there's a variety of other kinds of indigenous characters. Uh, you've got Elder Brother, who makes an appearance in one of the uh, stories. You've got um, lots of different work about tricksters. How, how do you see indigenous folks using uh, the comics form to draw on, on existing cultural forms to bring them to new audiences? I think it's um, an interesting form for all of our different interpretations. Something that is was taught to me about oral storytelling is that it is a co-creative experience. So it's the storyteller, the listener, but also the story and the characters or the figures or the land, uh, the teachings within the story. It is um, a reciprocal experience between all of these. And your interpretation may change as you have different life experiences and you re-listen to the stories. Maybe there was a part you weren't able to hear before, right? And so it's always a living 
ongoing experience. And so comics can very much so have part of that experience layered in with then these figures are taking visual form. And sometimes, like in the work that I do, there um, is particular meaning between the symbols that are being used or uh, the woodland style. There is this inherent then ability to look deeper at the pieces every time you revisit them. And I think that that's something that is really appealing about comics because you can hide so much, right, in a way that then people who are aware of stories may interpret it differently based on either stories they've already been told or their life experiences. And so I see a lot of this kind of work happening, but in ways that are very resonant. So uh, Dale Ray DeForest, for example, really brings forward, you know, traditional figures, but in a way that is very modern and really appeals to these pops of color and this incredible color that he uses. And then, you know, you've got someone like Darcy Little Badger, who is a scientist. I mean, that's actually her career path. She is a scientist. And yet, you know, through comics, she's been able to express all of these scientific teachings from an indigenous lens that are interwoven throughout her works. Even if it's about love, there is indigenous science interwoven into what she's doing. And so there are ways that we can bring these stories forward and express how, you know, they are truths. Well said. Thanks for that. That's great. Thanks. Yeah, I really, I do appreciate that. Beth, would you say a little bit about how you approach working with a, an existing story as an illustrator? You contributed uh, illustrations to Louise Erdrich's The Strange People in the first volume, and then you have work of your own Memories of the Future in the second volume. How do you approach illustrating something that pre-exists your contribution as an artist? You know, before this, I had always said that the one thing I would never do in my life is illustrate a comic for another writer. <laughs> <laughs> because I know how much work it is. And I always feel this sense of guilt as a writer passing off a script to an illustrator, knowing how much time that is going to take the physicality of it. Right. Um, and so what happened with that piece was I could not not illustrate that one because the strange people, her interpretation there that she's using is the antelope people or antelope woman, but I had just, you know, stepped out of working on Dear Woman, an anthology which grew out of Dear Woman a Vignette, and the stories are very parallel to one another. And I had complete flexibility with that to interpret it how I wanted to based on my own experiences, which I think was an extremely fortunate and unique experience that I would not expect to be afforded as an illustrator, you know, bringing about someone else's work. But because it is a poem, it, there was artistic interpretation to be had there. And it was the piece that offered healing from the work that I had been doing prior. So it was meaningful for me, not just in terms of being able to illustrate for Louise Erdrich, whose work I love, but also 
the process of the story, what took place in the story was actually very resonant and responsive to uh, the content in Dear Woman, a vignette. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Gordon Henry and Elizabeth LaPonce discussing their comics project, Sovereign Traces. Did the two of you uh, read a lot of comic books coming up? I certainly did growing up. But, you know, there were this sort of old uh, DC Marvel stuff when I, when I was growing up. It's not, I don't think the world quite had expanded in the comics way that I knew of, though, I, you know, as I get older, I've learned that there was more and more out there that I never encountered. It would be just stuff that I would pick up off the shelves when I went shopping with my mother or grandparents or something. And so it was sort of random the way that I did that. But uh, yeah, I engaged with comics growing up for sure. Was there anything particularly, Gordon, that appealed to you about, it sounds like particularly superhero comics? Yeah, it was mostly superhero stuff. You know, I mean, at that time, you can imagine Batman was big. I mean, if you can imagine that time, first of all, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, so that, I was engaged with that character, you know, sort of the, the, the character's uh, past, uh, you know, Orphan and, and everything else that's had sort of those mythic elements that were later to be part of, you know, were part of world tradition and are part of world tradition too. So, you know, it, and just the imaginative engagement with the, you know, being another person in a different context, all that, all that kind of things that kids might, might like. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't a you know, great reader. Like I said, there were a few, few options for me and, and when I was selecting what I was going to read, but it was mostly the superhero stuff. Yeah. How about you, Beth? Are comics an important part of your... It was all the like, you know, the, the edgy stuff, uh, Alan Moore and Alejandro Hodorowski and the sort of and then a lot of fringe comics. But I mean, that was because I had access to that, you know, and I could see, um, I think I was always looking at it visually more so necessarily than even about story. A lot of it was look at all the possibilities of what we could do, or look at what happens when you have black and white with splashes of red, the meaning that unfolds from that, you know, and I know that Neil for Gordon's piece had adapted part of that, you know, doing black and whites with these like highlights of color here and there, you know, and you can, you can feel that it comes off of the page that way. And so that's what I was always looking for uh, when I was reading comics growing up. It's definitely a good example. I mean, Neil's, Neil's uh, illustration, you know, I was just astounded how quickly he produced those two. I mean, it was, it was amazing, but you're right. It, it had this sort of aesthetic tone and feel that I thought did, you know, perfectly match the piece in many ways. Yeah. Did you give him much guidance, Gordon, or did he sort of take the piece and, and produce what he felt like producing? No, I didn't really give him much guidance at all. I mean, there were a few times he asked me about things and I'm like, you know, would it be okay if I ended this part here? And then I think I made one suggestion to him about, doing a whole panel with an illustration with a couple of the haikus as transition. Beth liked that idea too. So I think he, he picked up right away what I was getting after there and, and just made it work. So, yeah. One of the things I thought would be useful just because, you know, this is an audio medium, so it's difficult to convey the, the sort of bright and beautiful quality of both of these volumes would be to ask the two of you to try to do something like that not picking favorites exactly but could you tell us about a, a piece or two that you think really represents you know the the power of this project i think um mermaids by richard van camp in the first volume 
really stands out. That was illustrated by Scott B. Henderson. And then the colors were done by Donovan Yasik. And they're both known for collaborating with Indigenous writers. Uh, they have been involved in several Indigenous comic collections to that end. And there's a scene where there's glass that's breaking and the character is sort of like leaping through space. And that kind of movement is exactly what comics have the potential for is just like capturing this millisecond, right? But then it actually conveys all of this meaning that echoes through the piece. So that one really stood out for me there. All of the pieces are really incredible though. So um, just, but just in terms of thinking about what pops, why comics? Why as indigenous writers and thinkers and creatives, are we interested in comics? And I think that scene echoes that. How about you, Gordon, a, a particularly representative piece? Well, I, w I would say there were two for me in the first volume. And I'm gonna show my Anishinaabe bias. I mean, there's a <laughs> word, word for that. Um, you know, we don't have Anishinaabe language, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I would say best piece, and the Ice Tricksters piece were really for me, just um, the illustration of Visner's piece, there was this, this really cool juxtaposition of the panels and the verticality of the ice figure that was being carved out as they were making the ice figure. So you'd have the, the character laying back on this, this black thing that was kind of like a block of ice. And then be, you could see the character's tools in this sort of inset uh, in the make, for making the uh, ice sculpture. So. I mean, just the way it was done was ingenious. And then the, the tonal color of the, that piece was really perfect for that ice trickster um, theme or subject that was being addressed in the story. Best piece is a little bit, you know, it's just kind of uh, amazingly beautiful. And again, has these sort of uh, really detailed kinds of, um, uh, I don't even know what to call them, like little extensions of the body of, of some of the images that would show movement uh, of what was happening in the poem that I just thought um, was, was so imaginative and creative. And Beth is also good with creating this sort of, um, this world, this visual world that you're immersed in that right, right away harkens you into some kind of mythic environment. For me, that's what the poem was about. And, um, so for me, those two pieces just just blew me away and were astounding. Um, I mean, I like what Neil do with mine, but you know, I can't speak to that, honestly. In the preface to the first volume, uh, you indicate that there's going to be future volumes, and we've got two so far. Um, I was really fascinated by by some of the projected volumes there. One of them is uh, comic adaptations of foundational American Indian law cases, uh, and another one is um, dual language version of traditional Anishinaabe tribal stories. Are, are those still the planned future volumes? Yes, for my end, for my end, definitely. Yeah, those are the two that I'm going to try to focus on and bringing bringing people together um, with the, with the latter, the traditional stories. I'm I'm trying to decide whether I want a, a, a collection of you know disparate or traditional stories from different regions and people and cultures, or you know just a sort of concentrated local kind of collection of indigenous uh, stories. So that's the that's the main uh, decision I have to make. I have enough material in both, but um, I'm just trying to decide between those two and then to get illustrators for those. For the law collection, I've been talking back and forth with Matt Fletcher about this, and uh, 
he's on board. He sent me a sort of roughed out uh, draft of the cases that would be good for that, but we have to reconnect and sort of flesh it out as to you know how we're going to order and all and all that, and get then get illustrators as well. Could you say a little bit, Gordon, about what what did, what do we imagine that looks like an illustrated law case? Is it the story that led to the to the um, litigation, or how how does one illustrate a law case? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good question. So, I mean, if we if we think about law, of course, you know that there, there are statutes, there are codes, and then there's sort of case law, which is narrative, but in front of all those threes or prior to all those is the story of what, what happened, how the case got to court. So my, my response would be any and all of the above as Matt so chooses. So, you know, if there's, if there's a, something between, behind a Lone Wolf, Lone Wolf versus Hitchcock, the story before that might be the most interesting thing. And then the case itself would be laid out in some way. Um, it just depends on, on the law case and where the, the interest for the reader or the illustrator or the writer uh, might lie. That's the way I'm thinking of it. Again, it's, you know, you, you sort of want to be flexible to give people the imaginative uh, possibilities and license to do things as they think are, are most interesting and imaginative. And Matthew Fletcher, who's involved in that, has a piece coming out illustrated by Dale DeForest in Tricksters. And so that one is actually from a different press, but they, were I think one of the first comic illustration collections of indigenous stories and what's really exciting is that Matthew was brought on to do a story about Mikinoc Turtle which will be at the end of the collection now so it's a second edition of the same book but all of a sudden Matthew Fletcher has a comic in it and so he has experience now coming from law as a comic writer. Mm -hmm. And he's someone who actually mocks up comics, I think almost every day, like he's constantly doing this and he doesn't illustrate. So there's that limitation there, but were he to be paired with illustrators and have the funding to do that, then I foresee that he is going to put out work left and right. And he's really great with panels. He's got that kind of experience. And so I can see how you know, working on law comics, he would be able to bring that piece of, you know, how do you convey that? It's such an amazing idea, I think, to to really exploit the imaginative possibilities of a different medium to tell, you know, something of the history, but but illustrated in such a way that it's not just maybe dry case law or, you know, that, that it connects to actual readers where where it matters and their life experience and their emotions and those kinds of things. I mean, I think that really it does kind of speak to what both of these volumes are doing, which is saying, you know, representing, you know, existing kinds of things, exploring new experiences, making them accessible to new audiences and, and uh, to folks who are accustomed to reading in, in different kinds of forms. I'll have to know the answer to that question soon because I am illustrating Rupert's Land, that case, as well as dentistry cases for um, a report that's coming out from the Yellowhead Institute called Cash Back. And it's about um, how the Canadian government has co-opted funds through these different court cases or taken over resources. And then like the court cases that were trying to get support back, like getting, you know, support for dentistry back 
to individuals and then therefore to the community. So I, you know, even I will need to know that because it is something that is very important for us. I think like law cases are really integrated and wrapped up in treaties and negotiating rights and all of these, you know, pieces. And so I think that it will be something that we may actually see more of than you would think. <laughs> Beth, Gordon Gordon said he's sort of thinking about these law cases and, and traditional stories. Are you planning another uh, contribution to the Sovereign Traces series? I hope so. It depends on funding. My aim is to take back werewolves from Twilight. So we're going to, you know, reclaim werewolf, wolf, and Ruguru stories and just do something that's really fun, right? Like, again, you know, in the theme of Sovereign Traces, going with a book that is more for adult audiences with some flexibility there, understanding that, you know, it's going to be awesome, kick-ass werewolf stuff. So, and and I think we don't get to do that as often in comics so far in terms of funding because there's a lot of support from museums or educational funding or, you know, these different aspects. And so there's not a lot of space given to us to just actually play around. And so this is a collection that would be in response to that and giving people the opportunity to just say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to tell a werewolf story. So we've got, um, Maria Wolf Lopez lined up for that, as well as Richard Van Camp has a comic that he's been trying to get published for a while because I haven't been able to afford him. So my goal is to be able to afford him this time. Um, and then, of course, with Shoya Albitre, always go to her. She'll be illustrating and writing an original story. Uh, and then Dale DeForest, a number of other people who will be involved in that one and bringing in more new voices as well. But there are people who are sort of known for their interest in things wolves. So that should be an exciting and fun one. Can I, as the, as the white person in this discussion, can I, and and as a person who like has never seen a twilight movie before, (laughs) um, that's a good thing. Well, I, but it does, it does mean I have to confess my ignorance that I didn't realize that, that that werewolf mythology had become part of of racial stereotype yeah yeah definitely no that's the whole thing that happened where um i know that not for myself obviously but i have been with um young native men who you know are referred to as werewolves by other people in this sort of like exoticized other kind of way so it's like oh aren't you a werewolf and this weird kind of thing that happens um and then you know the problematics of those representations in twilight being you know savage equated with monster and out of control and wild and all of the transformations being tied up in in comparison to the vampire which is regal and you know european yeah yeah, european and can control itself and creating this dynamic between you know choosing between the two uh you know is problematic for native representations overall but especially for native men as well and so we have our own Wolf stories, there's a wolf clan uh, for Anishinaabe people. There's also wolf teachings. And so we have a lot to work from. From a Métis standpoint, there's Rougarou, 
which have their own stories all wrapped up in like how does one become a Ruguru? Uh, there are different tellings of the stories. And so this will be an opportunity for us to all get together and say, well, what are the different tellings of these stories? You know, how does transformation happen? How, how does one become a werewolf or a Ruguru? In some cases, some people see turning into a wolf as a part of shape-shifting. And so there might be shapeshifter stories in there, right? So really having an opportunity to say that one can have, you know, werewolf stories without having to go fall back on savage stereotypes. And another example of how the comics form is such a good place to negotiate these various interpretations of stories and legends and mythologies and things. Mm-hmm. So we're just about out of time, but before we go, I wanted to ask if the two of you had final thoughts on what's ahead for the Salmon Traces series. Um, nothing that I can think of at the moment. I, I'm just, uh, again, just hoping that we can keep up the uh, the energy and, and move the series along. I mean, uh, you know, it's really been a a great experience and a learning experience for me to to be part of this. You know, I had no clue going in. Maybe if I had known, I wouldn't have done it. But it's only because you don't understand, like, the work and the different kind of collaborations that you need. But it's always good to, you know, step out of your comfort zone, I think, and, and try new things. And I'm glad the press has given us the opportunity to do this and got me in touch with people like Beth, got to know her work better, uh, know her some of her contacts. And so, you know, all around, it's been a, it's been a really excellent learning experience and a, and a really great boon to what the press does, I think, you know, I mean, uh, we're expanding our audience of the series um, and we're giving people opportunity to do things maybe they hadn't done before. So that's always a plus. We just want to keep it going. That's the same for me. I just hope to keep it rolling. I'm really excited to work with MSU Press because they took a big risk, which was jumping into comic collections. And that's not something that university presses typically get involved in. However, having said that, like between the time that, you know, Gordon and Nugon were first starting the first one, what had happened was that Relational Constellation was actually happening simultaneously. I was lined up to publish that through Native Realities Press and MSU Press approached me to include it in the series. So both of the collections were actually wrapping up at the same <laughs> time. And then Relational Constellation became the second volume in that series uh, for the catalog. So, you know, there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of drive, and now we're actually seeing trends that university presses are jumping into comic collections. Well, MSU is very well ahead of the trend then and stands to possibly set a model for how can you do this or what makes it unique. And I think part of what makes a university press publishing a comic collection unique is that there can be more art splashes, more poetry, more interpretations, and more content overall that's done in different and unique ways. Absolutely, yeah. And I think one of the things Beth and I have been talking about, we want to figure out if there is any figuring it out, how to just make this series more uh, more known to people that might be teaching such things in classes. And so that these these texts, I think, are excellent teaching tools and models for, for a number of different ways of, of interpreting art, literature, story. And so we're just going to, you know, try to work a bit and see how we can uh, make people more aware of the possibilities for how this text might fit into a course that they might be teaching at a university or a tribal college, for example. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I for one can't say enough uh, about how exciting it is to see all of this work coming together, to see you know writers and artists collaborating, to see university presses getting involved in this kind of publishing and making these kinds of things accessible. I think that the, the work that the two of you did to bring these together really paid off in, in gorgeous volumes with, with really um, compelling stories. And I really thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about them. Miigwech, Kurt. Appreciate it. Yeah, miigwech. Thank you. Thanks, Beth. Miigwech. Yeah, miigwech, Gordon. The first two volumes of Sovereign Traces are available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find Gordon and Elizabeth on Instagram. Gordon is at Dr. Pinepoint and Elizabeth is at Elizabeth LaPense. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Mill. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Midi Hagos, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books. Mm-hmm.